Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day as we wrap up the week and the month. We have plenty to talk about. Big weekend and a lot going on. I was just thinking the national spotlight. Well, part of it's on Washington, D.C. with all that's going on with impeachment. And part of it, of course, is on Miami with the Super Bowl. But a lot of the spotlight also on Iowa with the caucus coming up uh, very, very soon. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Iowa here in just a moment. Also on our program today, a lot going on with hemp. Increased curiosity about hemp. Increased um, questions about growing hemp. And there are questions about the rules governing and oversight of uh, hemp production. We're going to talk with Scott Bennett with the American Farm Bureau Federation about the latest with hemp and some of those questions and if we have any answers. Also, Mike Steenhook with the uh, Soy Transportation Coalition will join us a little later, too, to talk about a couple of proposals out there being floated by each political party. They have a proposal for infrastructure. We'll take a look at those and whether we might see some action on either one this year. And it's the fifth anniversary for the Soil Health Partnership. We're going to talk with their senior director and uh, kind of look over these five years and uh, some of the things that we have learned and some of the work that's being done there for soil health. So that's coming up a little bit later. But let's go to that state of Iowa where the uh, uh, political spotlight is certainly shining right now. Let's talk with Monty Shaw, Executive Director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Monty, good to talk with you again. Uh, with all the uh, the political talk going on in your state, how much is agriculture in that conversation, and in particular, renewable fuels? Well, I think, uh, you know, with the Iowa caucuses, we've been flooded with candidates. You know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse, but we really do take advantage of it to try to get some of these candidates, particularly those that aren't from the Midwest, to learn a little bit about agriculture and renewable fuels. And i got to tell you, I've been really pleasantly surprised this year. Um, the candidates on the Democratic side have been engaging. They've been getting out into small towns. They've been touring ethanol or biodiesel plants. They've been talking about the need to uphold the renewable fuel standard and not gut it with these refinery exemptions. So, you know, I think it's been a pretty good year on that front. And I think whoever emerges next Monday, um, we'll probably have a pretty strong uh, track record on renewable fuels uh, by the time they leave the state of Iowa. The president is also, of course, uh, he's been in Iowa, and he's got a lot to talk about, some trade victories that he's certainly touting. But on the renewable fuels, his, his record's mixed there, isn't it? It is a mixed bag, you know, and, and you know, we shouldn't focus on only the positive, but we also shouldn't only focus on the negative. You know, there were two main from speaking from I don't want to speak for all of agriculture, but from a biofuels perspective, when he was campaigning in Iowa, he made two central promises. One, he was going to remove restrictions on higher blends of ethanol like E15. He did that. They did it well. The rule they used was written very well. We couldn't have asked for more. Obviously, the oil guys are trying to throw it out in court, but we think it'll stand up. And so the president deserves a lot of credit for that. Quite frankly, that is something we'd asked the previous administration to do, and they hadn't done it. So we do want to give President Trump credit for that. On the flip side, he had also promised to uphold the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard, and the congressional levels that were in the law. And uh, we all know through the refinery exemptions that have been abused and, in fact, recently ruled illegal by one uh, circuit court, 
um, they basically undermine those RFS levels. Now, they put in place a plan to supposedly get the thing back on track, but we don't, and it could, you know, there's a pathway now that exists to, you know, make 15 billion gallons be 15 billion gallons, but we won't know for sure until we see what the EPA does the next time they handle the, the next batch of refiner exemption requests. So uh, a lot of demand destruction has uh, already been done illegally, and uh, are they going to stop that going forward? We'll have to wait and see. We're talking with Monty Shaw, Executive Director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Monty, it was a tough year last year for uh, the ethanol and biodiesel industries. That, I'm sure, was felt in your state of Iowa because you're such a big uh, renewable fuel state. Yeah, and I think that's what made some of these policy battles just so much more painful. It's like, just follow the law, right? I mean, we're hurting. 2019 was really the second year in a row where uh, ethanol and biodiesel producers were hurting financially. Uh, some made a little money, many lost money. You know, the biodiesel industry was dealing with uh, you know uncertainty over the tax credit for over two years. We had plants shut down for the first time in a long time. And, and here's a stat that might blow your mind. In 2019, for the first time ever, the state of Iowa produced less ethanol than the year before. We, we checked the stats going all the way back into the early 80s, and every year uh, from the beginning of ethanol, fuel ethanol production in Iowa, production year on year has always either been basically the same or gone up. Okay, it's never gone backwards. In 2019, we produced uh, well over 100 million gallons less than we did in 2018. That's like shutting down a whole plant. And actually it was uh, more than that. So it's basically like shutting down two plants. So the, the, the impact of these refinery exemptions was real. The impact uh, of losing the China market was real. Uh, can we repair those in 2020? They could, you know, we're seeing some hope with China, perhaps opening up that market. Let's, let's see what they do. Uh, could the EPA get the RFS back on track? They could. But, you know, after the way they treated us the last few years, they have to prove it. The onus is on them to prove it. We, we shouldn't be asked to trust them to do anything at this point. Yeah, if, if a lot of things come together, this could be a big bounce back year uh, for the renewable fuels industry. Already biodiesel, just getting the biodiesel tax credit back in place and some certainty for a few years, that's already boosting that industry. Yeah, so biodiesel got a nice boost at the end of the year, kind of a Christmas surprise. Uh, a lot of credit to Senator Chuck Grassley, chairman of the Finance Committee in the Senate, for getting a multi-year extension of that. Others weighed in um, across the board, other states as well. But um, as chairman of finance, he was in a key position to do that. And and so that's helped. But we still need to you know build the demand side because uh, the, the market going forward for biodiesel is still uh, not that good outside of, you know, areas where there's like low carbon fuel standards and things of that nature. So we do need that RFS to get back on track. Um, but it could, I actually made that very point here a couple of weeks ago at a summit that we do, Mike, about this could be a bounce back year. As rough as 2019 was, you know, we did plant some seeds. I mean, getting the tax credit back, getting the provision in place where the EPA could make the RFS whole. Don't know if they will, but they could. And then uh, phase one with China. If we can get some exports going to China, if we can get the RFS, the EPA to follow through and actually restore the RFS to the full 15 billion gallons uh, for the first time ever, and, and some of these other things, um, we really might be able to see an economic turnaround in 2020. Now, I don't want to promise that. We don't know what China's going to do yet. We don't know what the EPA is going to do. 
but, but, you know, I'm an optimist and, and um, we've come through some hard times and I, I think we can hopefully see some light at the end of the tunnel and, and, and hopefully it's not a train headed our way. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Monty. Uh, see you soon in Houston for the National Ethanol Conference, right? Yeah, we'll see you there. I heard you're having Mike Steenhook on later. Tell Monty says hi. That'll throw him off. Okay. All right. Thanks, Monty. Take care. Right, Monty bye. Shaw, Executive Director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Up next, we'll take a look at the, the work of the Soil Health Partnership, marking five years now. What are the findings over those five years? We'll find out next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we continue to get reaction to the signing last week of the Phase 1 U.S.-China trade deal. Joining us now is the CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, Jim Sutter. Jim, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Good to talk to you. Well... So much focus on that trade deal. What did you see in it that you like? Well, as I've told people, I think we're certainly much better off having a positive trading relationship, having an open trading relationship with a country like China, especially when I think about when I have my soybean hat on. 60% of the soybeans that leave one country in the world and go to another. So in other words, 60% of international trade in soybeans ends up in China. So for the U.S., that has historically been the largest producer of soy in the world, for us to not have access to that market is really a bad thing. So very glad that the deal is behind us. And now looking forward to seeing how it gets implemented. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. The Renewable Fuels Association's 25th Annual National Ethanol Conference will be held February 10th through the 12th in Houston, Texas. Speakers include USDA Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney, Neil Curler, founder and CEO of Pacific Ethanol, Inc., and political analyst Bill Crystal. Registration is still available. For more information or to register, visit www.nationalethanolconference.com. This message brought to you by Syngenta, maker of Enogen, enhancing fuel ethanol production and supporting American farmers. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Last year was the five-year anniversary of the Soil Health Partnership. That's a farmer-led initiative of the National Corn Growers Association, working with farmers trying new soil health management practices. The goal, to improve soil health. Well, the Soil Health Partnership has released their first-ever annual report, and joining us to go over some of those findings is the Senior Director for the Soil Health Partnership, John Mesco. John, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Mike. It's my pleasure. So five years of data now to look back on. What are some of the key takeaways uh, that you can uh, look back on and, and point to um, improvements and accomplishments? Well, one of the things we've learned over the last five years is that measuring soil health is very elusive. Um, we're actually trying to measure uh, the, the effects going on in a living system that varies from year to year based on weather, varies uh, based on geography, and how what types of practices are being applied to the farm. So tillage practices, uh, changes in planting date and, and harvest date, and when cover crops are used. So, so there's a lot of variables at work when we try to assess what's happening in soil health. But in general, when we see farmers uh, reduce tillage and increase their use of cover crops, we see an increase in organic matter, and we see a, a steady uh, yield on the commodity crops that they're growing. So one of the things that many farmers are concerned about when thinking about introducing cover crops is, is that going to reduce my yield on my corn or my soybeans? And we're seeing no change in yield, and uh, we're seeing an increase in organic matter on our research site over that five-year window. There are still, though, questions about cover crops and uh, their value and whether farmers want to uh, invest in them or not. So this is an ongoing uh, project, right? I mean, trying to get that word out and and educating and talking with farmers about uh, the benefits. Absolutely. And our goal is not necessarily to, to promote cover crops per se. Our goal is to understand how farmers can apply changes to their farming practices so that they can improve their soil health. And so for those farmers that are interested in in understanding more about their soils and understanding more about this whole concept that we see so much of now in the media, in the ag media, about soil health, what makes uh, soil healthy and how do we get there? And so our work really centers on helping farmers to answer research questions that they have pertaining to their farm. And so, like I say, for some, it's tillage. They have a question about how they might consider changing their tillage operation or cover crops. In some cases, it's livestock grazing, which adds a component to soil health building that's totally different for a lot of folks. Uh, We may be looking at nutrient management. We have a a manure trial going in uh, this year. So lots of research questions that farmers have, and, and our goal is to apply our field team and our research protocols to help farmers develop those answers uh, for their farm, and then we can share that with other farms, uh, both in the in the local area, but uh, across the region and across the country. 
So there are a lot of ways to go about improving soil health. Cover crops is, is a topic that comes up a lot. And as I talk with farmers, uh, those there are those who are just 100% uh, into it and are you know really are big big advocates of it and but there are others that are still very skeptical and have a lot of questions and and just some have a hard time seeing it really uh, uh, working on their operation so uh, there there's a wide range of views on it at this point yes you're absolutely right and it's it's true of, of any new or or renewed uh, conversation in agriculture so we're at, when we think about implementing a cover crop we're thinking we're really looking at changing the way a farmer operates uh, they're going to add uh, extra passes onto their field to plant the crop they're going to add a, the, the component of, of terminating that crop in, in some instances and so it, there are a lot of questions one of the things that i could say anecdotally from what we've learned is that cover crops are in general a good thing um but the, the 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 devil is in the details. How they are implemented, and uh, in every in every situation, you know, certainly weather can impact uh, the development of that crop, and then its ultimate uh, impact, positive impact down the road. I mean, we've heard good stories and bad. Um, this past year in 2019, which was a challenging year for many in the Midwest, one of the consistent things we heard from our farmers was was that on the fields they had cover crops. Uh, they were able to get out on them and, and do their farm operations, their, their, their commodity crop planting, and in some cases their harvest much more much earlier than what they saw their neighbors doing. So that's a value, uh, certainly, that cover crops uh, provided to those producers. But on the other hand, we heard stories of folks that said, well, if I wouldn't have had to plant that cover crop, I would have been better off because of the, the, the wet weather or and so forth. So there's... The, the key in having a successful cover crop implementation is finding that right method and that right timing and the right mix of, of species of cover crops that fits that farm. And the implementation is really the deciding factor between uh, someone having a, a positive outcome and maybe someone that, that wasn't happy with what came out of it. And that's really what our, that's part of what we try to do with our field team throughout the Midwest, helping our farmers that are helping us with research to better implement those those practices to, to gain the maximum impact. We're talking with John Mesco. He is the Senior Director for the Soil Health Partnership. Uh, you are growing in the number of farmer uh, partners that you have, number of sites. Uh, I think you're up over 200 now. What about 220? Uh, do you have plans to grow even more? Well, we have uh, either active research or data on over 200 sites throughout the Midwest. We want to make, we're actually re-signing uh, several of our current producers who want to continue in the program for another five years so that we can get more data. We realize we need more years of data to, to be uh, better prepared to answer those questions. And so we're going to extend some farmers. In certain areas, we will be adding uh, particularly where there is funding available or there is a gap in our network. Maybe we, it's a geographic gap, or in some cases it's a, it's a crop-focused uh, gap. So we have a, a handful of wheat farmers that are part of our network, and we'd like to add a few more of those. Uh, and so we're going to add strategically to our numbers, but our goal is not to grow bigger just for the sake of growing. We have a good number of sites. And uh, we, we want to make sure we're making the most of them. 
but that's certainly we want to uh, continue this work. We're in this for the long run, and uh, so we're going to be around for another another run at this and uh, continue to improve our data set. John, what is required of a farmer and the farm operation if they sign up uh, to be part of the partnership? Well, one of the things that our our farmer-led mantra is is that we want to help farmers answer the questions that they're dealing with. So we're going to ask a farmer, what is your research question? What is it that you're trying to learn about? And then we would design a program that would hopefully get at that answer. In some cases, it might be a strip trial where we have several different uh, strips across the field, almost like a, a yield trial you'd see in a in a seed corn uh, evaluation or a soybean evaluation, uh, where we have a control and a treatment uh, across the field. In other cases, it might be a split field, where we just have one half of the field uh, farmed in the way it has been and then apply the treatment to the other half. Maybe it's a change in tillage or a cover crop. And then we'll ask them to uh, report their yield data back to us. We'll ask them to share with us their management information. So planning date, uh, harvest date, um, as I said, yield, the cost of their cover crop seed, and so forth, so that we can get a better understanding of the economics at play when a farmer implements some of these changes. And um, in some cases, we may ask them to host a field day for us. Uh, certain farmers are really interested in that, and so, and because of where they're located, may be advantageous so that we can continue to promote the program and the results for the local community. We often ask our farmers to uh, share with us uh, maybe pictures or, or other information they have off their field. So we, we have our promotion materials and our website are pretty heavy with farmer photos and highlighting our producers. And so we ask them to, to be, a, in some cases, a public-facing uh, uh, entity that, that supports our program and, and shares uh, with the community what's going on on their farms. Very good. John, thanks for joining us and uh, giving us an update and looking back over five years as uh, the Soil Health Partnership continues uh, its good work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. John Mesco, Senior Director for the Soil Health Partnership. Well, a lot of questions about hemp production. We're going to get into some of those questions and hopefully get some answers. We'll talk with Scott Bennett with the American Farm Bureau Federation up next on AOA. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invegor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. There continues to be a lot of interest in hemp production, but a lot of questions as well. A lot of folks are now saying that USDA's rule governing domestic production of hemp will actually hurt the industry. 
And uh, among those weighing in on this is the American Farm Bureau Federation. Joining us now is the Director of Congressional Relations for AFBF, Scott Bennett. Scott, thank you for joining us. What is the Farm Bureau position on hemp? And and tell us about uh, what you submitted to USDA concerning its rule. Absolutely, Mike, and thank you for having me on this morning. Um, Farm Bureau members are pretty excited about hemp. Uh, It was a heated discussion uh, as we adopted new policy in Austin at our 2020 annual meeting uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, And as you know, uh, day before yesterday, USDA closed the comment period on the interim final rule that uh, USDA will use to implement uh, hemp as it was passed in the 2018 Farm Bill. Uh, you know, we we look at this as a learning opportunity. Uh, hemp is brand new in the United States, at least in the modern era. We understand that, and we hope to work with USDA to find, uh, you know, protocols that work that support this industry. Uh, you know, we're cautiously optimistic as well uh, with the hemp industry as a whole. Uh, we encourage our members to use it in a diversified uh, farming operation, but um Again, we we primarily hope that USDA will work in a in a in a manner that's positive for the the production of this crop. It seems to be the biggest concern and criticism of USDA's uh, rule is that it would impose sampling and testing requirements that uh, would be very difficult to meet. Do you uh, do you agree with that? So uh, the way USDA uh, interpreted the statute or what was passed in the farm bill uh, would include uh, post-decarboxylization in the, in the testing of the, of the hemp plant. And uh, what that does uh, would it, – it, there's, there's potential for the THC level in hemp to be higher than the 0.3% uh, legal limit. Uh, we, as American Farm Bureau, pass policy that support uh, levels up to 1% THC. Uh, we also uh, encourage research uh, to be performed so that we can, uh, we can find strains of hemp uh, through research and development that uh, will lower that THC level while maintaining a high CBD level. Uh, we see that as the... Uh, ultimate solution to the problem. Uh, But yes, we are paying very close attention as to how USDA plans to test this hemp. Uh, Because, you know, farmers in the countryside that are growing hemp for commercial production, they're not trying to, you know, grow an illegal product whatsoever. And hopefully USDA takes that into consideration as they move forward. The president of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture has said that at least 30 states say they would have to revise their own laws in order to comply with this uh, USDA rule. And isn't that part of the challenge here? We have so many different rules out there, state to state. It is. What what USDA has done is they, um, through this interim final rule, have essentially established the lowest common denominator by which states can um, produce hemp. Uh, If a state legalizes hemp but chooses not to uh, develop a state plan, which would be a plan specific to that state to to regulate hemp production, uh, USDA has uh, essentially an umbrella that that state could fall under. And the state plans essentially 
allow for the states to tailor the regulatory uh, scheme around hemp to, to best fit the needs of that state. Um, yes, that means that there could potentially be 50 different state plans out there uh, that, that are all a bit different, but uh, they would all fall under um, uh, the, the certification by USDA under uh, this interim final rule. So, yes, there, there's potential that, that many states will have to go back and, and tweak their state plans uh, and we encourage the states to work closely with USDA to, to, to resolve that as fast as possible. We're talking with Scott Bennett with the American Farm Bureau Federation about uh, hemp production and the rulemaking process that is, that is underway. Scott, I, I find it fascinating when I talk with farmers. I mean, some are so excited and just either are already in it and wanting to grow uh, and expand or others are wanting to get into it. Then I talk with others that that couldn't get far enough away from it. They just said, no way, not, not interested. It's just amazing the, the, um, the discussion and the differences among farmers towards this, uh, this crop. No, I, I totally agree. Uh, this is uncharted territory to some degree. Um, there has been a, a lot of enthusiasm behind hemp. Uh, with that uh, is a bit of the gold rush mentality. Uh, I mm-hmm. think some some producers and some processors have been burned to some degree by some bad actors. Uh, hopefully, hopefully with this new interim final rule and you know, with an establishment of you know reputable sources in the industry, uh, we can curb that. Uh, but uh, again, for people who think they're going to get rich uh, quick growing hemp, uh, I would tell them you know let's pump the brakes a little bit. I encourage them to get in the industry uh, as their risk tolerance will allow them. But, uh, you know, we, we still have to make sound business decisions uh, and, and not go all in on something that we couldn't afford to lose otherwise. And to give you a prime example, I, I grew up in South South Virginia in tobacco country uh, on, a, on a cattle operation. One of our neighbors took seven acres out of tobacco and put it in hemp. Uh, he hit the highest of highs and the lowest of lows during the uh, during the production and, and raising of that crop. And when it was all said and done, I bet he broke even. And uh, I think that kind of goes to show that um, you know there, it's going to take time for us to really establish uh, price levels for for hemp and for CBD and kind of shake out some folks that are that might not be in it for the long term. Yeah, you have you have production questions, you have regulatory questions, and then you have, and this is the one I hear from a lot of farmers, marketing questions. Uh, what's your market for this? And if so many people are going to start growing it here all at once, does that drive down the price for it? You're absolutely right, and and I would even challenge you to say, you know, we have the ability to scale up the 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 production of of hemp. I mean, we can, we can grow this stuff year over year as fast as, as we want. Uh, the demand for it is certainly there when you look at CBD oil and its derivatives. Um, and then, you know, on more of the commercial side of hemp, uh, there's a, a, a growing industry there. But really where the bottleneck is is domestic processing. Um, we can grow it. The demand is there, but we've got to get it through the supply chain and, and through the processors. Uh, I think, I think, Processors are needing to see a, that three to five year balance sheet on 
uh, exactly where this is going to take them before they put a lot of money into into investing and processing. Uh, but once we get there, hopefully uh, this industry will stabilize to some degree, and that will allow for farmers to better uh, forecast, you know, their their level of interest in growing this crop, and it'll give processors a little bit more stability as to what to expect as far as input into their plants, whether it's for CBD oil or for an industrial purpose. And really, those are challenges to be expected anytime you have something in its infancy, like, uh, like not that hemp is, but the commercial production of it uh, just now really, uh, you know, we're in the early stages of that. Let me ask you Absolutely. this, Scott. W- in your in your crystal ball, looking ahead, do you see hemp as becoming a major crop in this country, or maybe just a, a niche market for for hemp? Well, I think for now it's certainly uh, a niche uh, market. Um, you know, just like you have the corn belt and and you've got tobacco country. I I think over time you will find that there is a hemp belt. Right, there will be areas and pockets of the country that find hemp works for them. Uh, the processing will grow there. Uh, therefore, the local pro- the growing and production of hemp will grow there. Uh, I think that's yet to be seen where those uh, kind of that regional hemp belt is going to find itself. Uh, but uh, I think it'll be a major crop for, you know, I think this will really put food on, on the table for, for families that uh, take a pragmatic approach to you know, putting this in a diversified operation. Um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, uh, and I don't know if hemp will become a, a, a super major crop. But what I do know is that in the meantime, while farmers are interested in it, we at American Farm Bureau have our nose to the grindstone to make sure that um, policy works for them and it's advantageous uh, for for the producer and the farmer uh, and we have been working closely with USDA on that. We have a constant open dialogue with them on this issue. And uh, we have, again, a great working relationship, and we hope to see uh, this industry grow. Real quick, when do we get the final rule from USDA? You know, I'm not sure when we get the, get the final rule. It'll be uh, a couple years. This interim final rule will, will remain active. Um, we'll see how this interim final rule changes. Um, of course, we've submitted comments. They'll take those comments and uh, hopefully uh, turn that into meaningful changes into what becomes of the final rule. But uh, we will wait and see. All right, Scott. Thank you for the update. Hey, thank you so much, Mike. Take care. Uh, all right. Still lots of questions around hemp production. That's Scott Bennett, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, both political parties have infrastructure plans. How are they alike or different, and what are the chances of anything happening on infrastructure this year? Let's talk about it with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, what can you tell us about these plans that are being uh, put forth by the uh, both political parties? 
Well, you, we're seeing you know both parties unveil a number of contours, kind of some broad contours and themes that they really want to see uh, be achieved. You know, the, 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 on the Democratic side, particularly on the House Democratic side, they've actually attributed some money to it, um, and so and it's it's a big you know seven hundred and sixty billion dollar number. Um, you know, of course, the big difference, the big question mark, of course, for, on both the House, on both the Republicans and the, the Democrats, is how you pay for it. That's the, the, the prevailing question, the perpetual question on matters related to this. Um, you know, again, the easiest part is to spend. The hardest part is to pay for it. Um, but what we, what we do see when you're looking at these just, you know, broad themes, one of them that you're seeing on both the Democratic side and on the Republican side, which really excites us is a real emphasis on rural infrastructure, things like rural roads, rural bridges. You know, our rural bridge system, that's where, you know, when you look at all of the deficient bridges in the United States, they're highly concentrated in rural areas, but yet it's the rural communities, the counties, the municipalities that are the least equipped to be able to upgrade those bridges. And so the fact that the, the federal government recognizes that it's not their sole responsibility to take care of rural bridges, but they can certainly make a meaningful contribution to it. That's something that really excites us, and we look forward to you know, continuing to make this case in the future. We need to be attentive to the needs of urban America, but we also need to be attentive to the needs of rural America. Is there enough common ground between the two proposals where they could conceivably come together and get something passed finally on infrastructure? Uh, you know, I think that's when you look at both the republicans and the democrats they they both have this high aspiration to be able to demonstrate to the american people in the midst of all of the acrimony uh all of the hard feelings that there is an ability to get something done and and the last thing they want to do is say I would like to do something on infrastructure, but it's the Democrats that are preventing it, and the Democrats want to likewise will say, well, we want to do something about infrastructure, but the Republicans won't permit it. I do think there's an opportunity to get something done meaningfully on infrastructure. The question is, is it a big, comprehensive uh, infrastructure plan, or is it something more modest, like reauthorizing the, what's called the highway bill, the surface transportation bill that's due to be reauthorized every five years. It last was passed in 2015, so it is due for reauthorization in 2020. And that's so, so I think at minimum we'll see something like a, a, high, a new highway bill get passed. Um, the question is, is there going to be something more seismic? And, you know, the, the big determining factor on that, I think, is going to be the president and, and how much he really wants to, to get behind it and how he really sees what he sees, whether doing a, a highway bill or something more comprehensive than that. And what are the signals coming out of the administration on that? Well, I, I you know, he, he clearly uh, understands the importance of infrastructure. It really is one of his, on the short list of issues that he's really passionate about uh, more than others. So, I, I mean, I do think he, he'll want to do something significant, you know, that whether it's more comprehensive or something really, uh, you know, a, a well-capitalized highway bill, that really remains to be seen. But, you know, one of the messages that we're conveying to the administration and to Congress is there's a project that could get green-lighted right now um, that doesn't require any congressional authorization. Congress has already provided the money for it. Now it's just 
up to the administration to actually give it the green light, and that's deepening the lower Mississippi River between Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to the Gulf of Mexico. That area accounts for 60% of soybean exports, 59% of corn exports, and there's this effort to, to deepen it so that you can improve the economics of that key launching point for soybean and corn exports. Again, Congress passed the, the funding for it. It was signed into law in, before Christmas of this past year, and now it's up to the administration to say, we, we are going to include this particular project as a priority project to receive funding. So this is a real key time, and, and really it's up to the administration to make that come to pass. And so that's something that we're working very diligently on right now. The president could do something right now on infrastructure that would enhance the supply chain of agriculture. That's a great opportunity. Which would seem to be a logical step. I mean, you pass trade deals. Uh, you have to be able to move that product to those destinations where you're going to trade with, those countries you're going to trade with. So uh, that makes this even more critical. And I, that, that's a message that I'm really trying to transmit, that it's a package deal. You, if, we, if we aspire to export more, you at the same time have to aspire to have an infrastructure that can accommodate it. You can't have one without the other. It is a package deal. So it really is an, an opportunity to really convey this message. A couple of days ago, Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa actually had a meeting with the head of the Army Corps of Engineers emphasizing this particular project because you know, on the aftermath of this phase one deal with China, um, some of the increased prospects for doing some exports, we're hopeful that those mater will materialize. You know, she made this case that, hey, if, if, if we want to really provide a shot of adrenaline to agriculture, um, yes, we've got these trade deals, this prospect for new exports, but we also have to have this infrastructure. This specific project deepening the lower Mississippi River is a real key uh, way to enhance our supply chain. So there are some things that uh, they could get done on infrastructure right away without having to pass a big comprehensive uh, bill. So we'll see if they if take advantage of those opportunities and uh, we actually see some uh, significant progress made in some of those areas, hopefully this year when it comes to infrastructure. That's Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining us here on Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day. You're listening to AOA. AOA.